From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. By now, we've all seen the video of Tyree Nichols, a black man who was recently beaten to death by black police officers in Memphis, Tennessee. It's disturbing to watch and difficult to make any sense out of it. For our panel discussion this week, I sit down with Solomon Jones of Man Up PHL to discuss the systemic problems with police brutality and what needs to be done to stop these roadside beatings. I was hurt that they did not see their brother when they did that. I was hurt that they did not see themselves when they did that, but that speaks to the power of racism in this country and in that system. And seeing videos of that nature can certainly take a toll on our psyche. We check in with Dr. Angela Roman Clack, a licensed psychotherapist in South Jersey, as she shares ways we can heal from witnessing traumatic events. This notion of internalized racism, and that is this sense of hatred for people who look like in your own group and how that is indoctrinated in groups around power. Shower Day Howard's Newsmaker is executive director of the NOMO Foundation. They support Philly youth through various programs, including a new one that emphasizes home ownership. A lot of these young people are living in Section 8 housing. So if the person is on a lease, they pass away. They don't have nowhere to live. So what we're doing is creating something that you can pass down. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. We've all had time to try to fully digest the fatal beating in Memphis, Tennessee of Tyree Nichols, a father of one who was driving home from work but was pulled over during a traffic stop that went horrifically wrong. We've all seen the different videos from many different angles, both from body cams to street cams, showing us what black officers are doing to a fellow black human being. The video is unsettling. Questions of racism arise, but how could it be racist if the officers are black? There are so many questions, and many of us are old enough to remember the shocking Rodney King video, which captured his merciless beating at the hands of police. Cameras are still capturing videos of black human beings, the lives of black human beings not being valued. With me now to discuss this issue is Solomon Jones. Solomon is founder of Man Up PHL, and he authored a book entitled 10 Lives, 10 Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. It's about how to bring about reform in the criminal justice system using 10 cases as a catalyst on how to do it. Solomon, let's first talk about the culture of policing. Just looking at everything, and I'm going back to Rodney King. You know, we've seen so many of these videos of black men just being beaten by police officers, but we're not really too familiar with seeing videos of all black officers beating a fellow black man to death. So what's the problem with the culture of policing across the United States where we're still seeing this happening? Hmm. I think that it's systemic in nature. I think that you have a system that has its founding in slave patrols, in the controlling of Black bodies and Black people, and that culture is deeply embedded in what you've seen with, with policing and what you've seen policing become. These five Black officers would not have dreamed of doing that to a white person. Um, I had an officer tell me that we are not trained to harm white people. 
you know, and, and that goes beyond just policing. That goes to the culture of the United States um, in general, that Black people, unfortunately, are less valued than others. And so when you have a system that was founded in the control of Black people and Black bodies, then that becomes endemic in the culture. And that continues even until today. It's something that we have to talk about, we have to admit, so that we can fix it. You know, that's interesting um, because people are still talking about this. We're discussing, you know, the racial component with the officers being black, you know, asking questions like, can there be a racial issue here? You know, not looking at the systemic issues of the history of the United States and how these officers were trained. So there actually is a racial element to this, even though the cops were black, correct? There is absolutely a racial element to it. I, I liken it to a game of chess. In chess, each piece can only move in a certain direction. Uh, you have a black set of pieces and you have a white set of pieces, but each of those pieces um, on each side can only move in a specific direction. Uh, the rook can only move horizontally or vertically. The knight can only move uh, three up and, and two over. So it doesn't matter whether you are black or you're white. If you're in a system where your position can only move in a certain way, then you become part of a system that is racist. And so I think that certain people within those systems can certainly do something to exercise power in specific situations. But because you are in a system where you can only move in certain ways, that where you are constrained, uh, then you can be Black and be part of a racist system. You know, in your op-ed, you talked about the officers, I guess, having an awakening because justice came very swiftly in this particular case. And that's not something that we're used to seeing. People were peacefully demonstrating, which usually happens while waiting for justice to be served. But there wasn't any wait this time. So talk about the difference between what we've seen historically and this particular case. And does this set a precedent going forward on how these cases should be handled? This is how it should always be handled. Unfortunately, it is not how it's going to be handled because this is a unique case where, again, the racism in the system plays out because you have five black police officers who you then, then can make an example out of them and say uh, they don't represent the rest of us. It was amazing to me that you did not see the police union immediately speak out like you did in the case of the officers who killed Michael Brown or the officers who killed Eric Garner or the officers who killed Alton Sterling or George Floyd. You had a system stand up and say, no, don't rush to judgment on, on this officer or these officers. Don't do that. You had prosecutors say, wait, we're going to wait for the investigation to play out before we allow you to see the videos, before you see any evidence. Because these officers were Black, um, it gives the system the opportunity to say, well, it's not racist and, and we're even handed and see, we prosecute police officers immediately. Yeah, you do if they're black. And that becomes the issue. These officers should absolutely suffer the consequences for what they've done. But let's not pretend that this sets some precedent because it doesn't. They're black. They're being treated differently. You know, I was talking about this with my husband the other day, and he made an interesting point. As you watch the tape and you hear Tyree scream out for his mother, why is it that at no point during this situation did these officers not see their brother on the ground, their son on the ground, their father, their uncle, their nephews, themselves? They didn't even see themselves on the ground in this situation. Yeah, it is amazing to me that they 
seem to be so indoctrinated within this system. We're all blue. We're all on the same team. We're all, we'll stand up for you if, if something happens. Don't worry about it. You go ahead and do your job. Well, you literally are trying to engage in the same behavior that your white colleagues do and do it in a way that you believe you're being colorblind. But the reality is that that system that you're upholding is not going to hold you up when the chickens come home to roost. And so I was hurt that they did not see their brother when they did that. I was hurt that they did not see themselves when they did that. But that speaks to the power of racism in this country and in that system. Well, let's talk about some solutions now, because we're looking at fear on both sides. What are some of the possible solutions to this issue that we can finally see this come to an end? Do we need to see nationwide sweeping changes across the board when it comes to police interactions with the community? What needs to happen? Well, the thing that needs to happen is that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act needs to pass on a national scale. Uh, unfortunately, that is not going to happen. Republicans now control the House. Democrats have a very slim majority in the Senate where some Democrats wouldn't vote for police reform. And so that's not going to happen on a national scale. And so you then have to look at local and state solutions uh, that you can put in place, things that have been proven to work. One of them is consent decrees. So the Justice Department, when they investigate a department and find that there is a pattern or practice of abuse within that department, can sue that department, force them to the table and put what's called a consent decree in place. Uh, that is where you have a federal judge oversee an agreement between that police department and the Justice Department for specific changes. And that judge provides the impetus for them to make those changes. It's overseen by that judge. The Justice Department is there. That can happen, has happened in the past and needs to happen in the future. It's one of our underused tools. The other thing that has to happen is that if officers have body cameras and they turn them off or pretend they're broken or break them on purpose, which has been done, uh, they need to be criminally charged. That's something that can happen on the local level. Um, you need to make sure that when people are wrongfully convicted, because some people survive this stuff and then they go to jail for stuff that they didn't do. If they're wrongfully convicted, every state has to have compensation for those who are wrongfully convicted. But we have to understand what these strategies are in order to make them happen. All right, Solomon. Good points. Are there any other suggestions or solutions that you'd like to mention? Yes, we have to use independent prosecutors because you're not always going to have cases where there are black police officers and the system can benefit from making an example out of them in order to bring about the accountability we need. All right, that's Solomon Jones, founder of Man Up PHL and author of the book, 10 Lives, 10 Demands. Solomon, thank you so much for lending your voice to this topic. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Raquel. Appreciate you. Talk to you soon. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. More than 5,000 from this area alone show you support them. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. When it comes to witnessing trauma, the question becomes, how much of it can we stand? I reached out to Dr. Angela Roman-Clack. 
She's a licensed psychotherapist and owner of Clack Associates, LLC. It's a private practice outpatient counseling agency in South Jersey. So let's talk about what we saw last weekend, the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols at the hands of police officers in Memphis, Tennessee. And we have seen this time and time again, Black bodies being abused at the hands of police officers, but we really weren't used to seeing Black police officers doing this to another Black man. So this is something that's a head scratcher for a lot of us in the community going, how could this have happened? What does this do to us when we constantly see images Mm. like this, first of all, Dr. Clack? Well, I think in full disclosure for me, I could not get through the entire video. I will. I know I'll come back around to it so that I can be fully present for these kinds of conversations or for a client. In terms of how people are processing this, it is very confusing to believe that people who look like us would inflict harm upon us in a way that is so abusive to death. And I think it leaves a lot of us very confused and very sad and disturbed we are still reeling over so much trauma from 2019, 2020. And here we are in 2023 with a group of folks who look like us. And for most people that I'm talking with and we're talking through this together, we are not making sense of it, but it is a hard um, reality that this is happening. I guess the next question would be, you know, and I've spoken to, you know, people who are activists and outspoken about police work and saying that, you know, it's the blue at this point, you know, once officers, no matter the color, Mm. put on the uniform, they're all one color. They're all, you know, quote unquote blue. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting in that these officers, they didn't see themselves on the ground. They didn't see a family member on that ground and they continued to pummel this man And it's almost unconscionable how any human being could do this to another human being. But knowing what we've all been through, to see that at the hands of people that look like us is just even more Mm -hmm. disturbing. Is it the mob mentality? We're all trying to wrap our heads around why this could possibly happen with so many officers there with the same mindset. Mm -hmm. What is that? So a couple of things are coming up in terms of our conversations. One is this notion of internalized racism. And that is this sense of hatred for people who look like in your own group and how that is indoctrinated in groups around power, right? Power and even privilege, you know? So that's one notion. The second is this bystander effect. And that is I'm standing with this group of people, i.e. the EMTs. I know I should be doing something, but because they're not, then I'm not. And that bystander effect is we stand by and we watch why nobody takes the initiative to go and do something. And so there's a lot of different dynamics that we're talking here when we talk about kind of psychological processes. But at the end of the day, we have someone who is no longer here. And to me, that is the greatest impact when I think about how egregious and how violent that was, that they didn't even think to intervene because their fear of crossing the lines of the police officers. And what that meant for them while they watched someone die. That's the conversation I've been having with a lot of my colleagues around, so why didn't they do something? And what was the mentality of them? What was their fear of? Fear of what? The police officers then turning on them? 
because they have perceived power as people with badges, absolutely that's part of what that was. And now they have the consequences for that. How deep is the issue of self-hate when it comes to your own people, your own ethnicity? What does that go back to? Slavery. You know, a lot of younger people do not have the privilege. Well, they don't take advantage of opportunities to watch really early movies around slavery. We all did that growing up because Roots was on every season growing up for us. They don't want to go back and believe that that's a reality, to be honest with you. They they just kind of want to see things as they are today and live in the moment. But if we remember that who kept slaves in line was another slave. And they would also beat them. And because they wanted to be seen in the favor of the master. This isn't new for us. It's sad that we see this in a more, quote unquote, contemporary progressive society but we're back to power and privilege again. And we're back to situations where we um, self-preservation is me or them at the cost of my community, at the cost of my community and someone who looks like me. Let's talk about some solutions for healing, because as we said in the beginning, this is traumatizing to see Mm -hmm. this over and over again, whether it's this particular video or another beating or another shooting or what have you. How do we go about healing from this in between these different events? What should we be doing? One of the things that I tell people is that if you're noticing changes in your mind, in your body, and that means my mood, if I'm seeing myself increasingly agitated, even feeling some symptoms of rage, you need to talk to someone. It isn't coming from somewhere. These are cumulative effects of trauma. This is called secondary trauma. It's vicarious trauma that I'm now impacted by trauma indirectly by witnessing traumatic events. There has been something of an assault against the Black body probably since 2019. I feel like if you added the numbers, it'd be almost every other week. That is a lot on the psyche of a Black person. There's a constant sense of, I'm not safe in my body. If I get pulled over, what's the first thing I do? I'm freaking out. I'm getting someone on the phone. How do I protect myself? We have not had time to process all of this grief, this death and this trauma before the next thing happens. We have to take care of ourselves. That's conversations with our family members or friends, just to process it, not to talk about revenge, not to talk about how what should happen to them, but let's talk about what's happening to me. How am I processing this? I'm not understanding this. This doesn't make sense to me for four brothers who look like me to do this to my brother. I just don't get it. So we have to process unresolved and undigested trauma. You have to talk about this. What people may be doing when they can't talk about it is we drink, we smoke, we do drugs, we do other things because we can't deal with the feelings. If you don't have someone who showed you how to do this, then you use other vices. Depression sets in if you don't have someone to talk to. There's a lot of anxiety. I'm walking down the street. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder, depending on where I live. I get stopped by, I drive by a police officer. I get anxious. I don't want need people to keep watching the video over and over and over again. If you're not ready to watch it, don't. Don't feel guilty if you can't watch it because it is going to pull for some, a lot of emotion. 
And if you don't have anyone to process that with, you could be left sitting in a lot of sadness, a lot of rage. All right, Dr. Angela Clack, thank you so much for your time. I, I appreciate you lending your voice to this topic. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. More than 5,000 from this area alone show you support them. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The Philly Rising Changemaker is sponsored by Penn Medicine Heart and Vascular Center, performing the most advanced heart procedures in the region. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. A safe space. That's what the youth growing up in Philadelphia need to have. The NOMO Foundation provides just that. Sharaday Howard sits with Ricky Duncan, our Newsmaker of the Week. Our newsmaker this week is Ricky Duncan, executive director of the NOMO Foundation. Now, NOMO's provided Philadelphia youth with a safe space to kind of grow up through education, life skills, and career networking. I mean, there's even business classes. You have kids who are starting their own businesses. But what really has North Philly neighbors talking is that as gun violence and carjacking is really overwhelming the news, Duncan has geared NOMO programs toward teaching kids the real-life legal repercussions and consequences of crime, specifically carjacking and the impact of gun violence on the entire community. Ricky, not only have you addressed the spike in street violence with the kids, but now you've added a new program assisting youth experiencing homelessness, and you're helping them take that leap into home ownership. But you say it starts with the foundation. Well, no more acronyms just stands for new options, more opportunity. Me and knowing that it needed change in Philadelphia, the kids needed to see something different, and me knowing what I had to encounter on my years of growing up, going in and out of the judicial system and having the trials and tribulations that I occurred in my life, I knew that the future needed more. And in, by more, you mean more education, more opportunities. Tell me what more means to you. More financial literacy, more education, less poverty, more housing. It needed so much more. You know, we needed an uplift. We needed a facelift in our community. What were you seeing around you that you decided, hey, not only do they need a little guidance and opportunity, but they need me? Well, more so I see that it was a lot of violence taking place and a lot of drug dealing and violence was like the biggest thing that was plaguing the urban community. And me being involved in both aspects of, life, of that life once upon a time, I knew I would be more of a beacon of light and a real model to those kids that could see someone in real time, realistically, change their life around and do something different and show that it is other options in this world. And I mean, you really can't have a more influential person than someone who's been on both sides, someone who gets it. That's what I call lived experience, yes. It's one thing to have the educational background, which is also great to have, because you need to be on both sides of the coin. So you know how to meet the young people where they are, and also be able to speak the language of the people. They want to be able to see themselves in you. Now, how do you show them the possibilities? I show them by ways of life, and I show them by, by my elevation. And you teach these kids the real-life repercussions, the consequences of crime. And just because you don't know, that's not a defense. You can't carry that in court. It's not what you know, it's what you're supposed to know. That's the law. It's not what you know. You know, we're guilty for not knowing sometimes. And that's because we suffer from generational curse. So here at NOMO, I try to build them from the ground up. I believe in early initiative and intervention prevention. So we also want to, we're going to give you the, the educational aspect. We're going to give you the vocational training, the financial literacy, the workforce development. And then we're going to gradually graduate you into lived experience. Then we also want to give you what we call a livable wage opportunity. 
and then you graduate them into actual housing. From housing insecurity or being on the street, you give them an opportunity to own their own homes. Let's talk about that. And then from that step there, we also just recently opened our Time Reed Village where you're able to get housing. And this is independent and shared living housing that each young person, 18, 24 months, through our guidance, will enter into the first-time home buyers program and be eligible to be a first-time home buyer when, when they leave the program. The parameters are each person that enters to the program, they each really, we receive a life coach. The life coach is going to guide them through making sure they got a secure bank account. They're going to make sure that they're in the first-time home buyers classes, financial literacy classes. They have a career or orientated job with livable wages. They are only going to be responsible for 30% of their income to put towards their moving expenses and and 70% is totally paid for by us and we make sure that they got everything they need from, you know, a community of life skill training all the way up to just a family atmosphere. This is huge. When we think about all of the aspects of what happens to our community, a lot of it is generational wealth has been taken. Often in the city, no way of getting it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. So you're teaching them from the beginning. Okay, so financial literacy means freedom. And housing means an opportunity to really live the best life you can live. Exactly. Something no one can take from them. Something they can leave to somebody. Nobody can take it from them. Because what happens now is a lot of these young people are living in Section 8 housing. So if the person is on a lease, they pass away. They don't have nowhere to live. Now we have a homeless young person. We have a home, a young person that's in the system. So what we're doing is creating something that you can pass down. We're tired of passing down debt. Now man, we want to we uplift each other and pass down wealth. Now this is giving you a net worth. This is giving you something that you can call your own. And where better to start than where you lay your head? You're putting your roof over your head, you put your roof over so many heads. An empire, generational wealth, because we're tired of generational curse. We're tired of the excuse of we didn't know. It's what we want to teach you by early initiative intervention. We're going to give you the guide, and we're going to walk you through it in real life, in real time. And you're giving them an opportunity to kind of have some vision. Yeah, we're giving them that vision, that beacon of light at the end of the tunnel. You got to create that vision because a lot of them don't see that far. You know, when I turned 18, I was going to say, maybe I'll get my own check now. No, you're not going to get a welfare check. You're going to get your own check. You could become an entrepreneur. We create LLCs for our young people. We have a young person that came out of here that actually has their own nonprofit. You know, we, we show them how to monetize their cell phone. Because social media could be a gift and a curse. We want them to monetize on the gift side of things. Right. You know, not just be on there exploiting your body or counting Monopoly money likes. Right. You know, we want them to be able to make that so that they can make a living out of it. If this is what you're going to do, we're going to make the best of you in doing it. I mean, I wish I had something like this when I was a kid. I'm from Philly, boy. <laughs> even that's the, that's the thing. When In any conversation, either someone's going to mentor you or you're going to mentor them, whether it's good or bad. And we believe in moral development, you know, and in, in our moral development stage, we believe from by the ages of zero to six, this is stuff you're going to learn in your house. And then as you go six and up, these are things that you're going to learn outside your door. And then at that, that last stage, whenever that comes, you're going to have to decide what's right from wrong. So we want to give you the good things because everything that you get inside your house is not always good. You know, so you want to make sure that you can make a positive decision for the best of your future. And you're giving them the hard facts. You're telling them the truth about street violence. You're telling them what this means good or bad, and the street violence out of control. How are you addressing it? A lot of times what's happening is, you know, when you say that everybody at court with a gun is not a shooter, you know, so what happens is we have young people that's carrying guns just so they won't get carjacked, but they're not of the age of 21 to legally carry. They carry a gun just so they can walk in their house tonight safely because it's not who did it, 
is where you from that did it. So you're guilty by association. If you live on 7th Street and they're going to war with 5th Street, you know, you got to carry yourself and recognize the fact that they don't care if you're a school-age kid. They don't care if you're a basketball player. You're from 7th Street, and that's just what it is, and that's a problem for me. How do we bridge these gaps? How do we get these kids on the right track? We talk about bridging the gap between, you know, the police force and the community. It's neighborhoods that need that gap bridged. You know, that's been at war for years since I was a kid. I'm from 7th Street, 7th Snyder area, and, you know, I couldn't tell you who threw the first punch with the 5th Street, 7th Street rival because I was born into it. Again, another part of generational curse. All our children are integrated with 5th Street, 7th Street kids, so that's a real distressful household to know that my brother's from 7th Street and my other brother's from 5th Street, but we can't visit each other. You know, this is where that things had to stop. And this carjacking thing is a lot of times these cars are not just being used to sell. They'll be using to do drills in. You know, they're, they're doing shootings. They're doing all types of things in these cars. So, you know, nowadays is they're looking for the tinted up cars, the faster cars, so they can use as getaway cars. They're targeting anybody. You know, my daughter was a victim of carjacking. Luckily, we was able to get the car back that same day with no harm. She was, she was traumatized. And that's not always the case where they walk away. Because they're not selling it for, for glamour. They're not selling it for glips. They're selling it to do commit crimes in. What is the most positive outcome when a kid walks out of these doors? A kid walking down the aisle, whether it's 8th grade or 12th grade graduation. A kid obtaining a job that didn't have a job. A kid getting his driver's license so the stop and frisk is no longer an, an option. A kid opening their own business, becoming their own entrepreneur. Any type of success that the child has, I don't care if they was here one week or four years, just know that that cognitive thinking started here. That changing their way of thinking because if you don't know, you don't know. So how can people help? They can go online to us at www.nomofoundation.org or they can go to our GoFundMe page. It's the Tyree Village. We're looking for donations. Everything counts. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shower Day Howard, and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.